Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Welcome back to the peripheral. Uh, Typically, most of my guests are people that have written in about their stories. Uh, But tonight is a special occasion because this was somebody that I had reached out to and they agreed to come on. Uh, As we all know, the opioid and heroin epidemic has truly left no one untouched, even those we would consider the most unlikely to be affected. Tonight, I speak with a father who suffered a terrible loss. He's a former police officer, and he started a wonderful organization called Brooks House. So, without further ado. Why don't you introduce yourself, Kevin, and what you had been doing for over 20 years of your life? Okay. My name is Kevin Simmers. I'm 58 years old, father of two, counting Brooke. I was father of two kids mm-hmm. and one stepchild. I'm married to a beautiful woman who is really my, she's everything to me. She's what keeps me going. She's given me the inspiration to do what I'm doing now. Her name is Dana. We've been married for over 20 years. And she was, for all intents and purposes, she was the stepmother to Brooke, but I call it step parents are the ones that step up. And, and she was, for all intents and purposes, the mother to both of my children, Grant and Brooke. So I'm 58 years old. Like I said, I graduated from Clear Spring High School, which is in the county that we're located. We're about an hour west of Washington, D.C., or an hour west of Baltimore, Maryland. In 1983, I, I believed wholeheartedly in Ronald Reagan's message, serve your country do the right thing, say no to drugs, lock up the criminals. So I bought into that hook, line, and sinker, joined the Air Force. I trained dogs. I was a placement in the Air Force. And when I got out of the Air Force in 1987, I joined the Hagerstown Police Department. We're a police department of about 100 sworn officers, 110. What's the population of that town? The population of the city limits is probably around 50,000, I'm guessing. 40,000 to 50,000, mm-hmm. but that's the corporate city limits. Yeah. Hagerstown's a much bigger location. It's probably 100,000 in Hagerstown, but the corporate city limits are probably 40,000. When I joined the police department in the late 80s, crack cocaine was the big deal. It was really taking over our city. Yeah. As far as open air drug markets, a lot of small time breaking and entering, people breaking into cars, stealing stuff. We were just getting inundated with that. And, you know, I was very competitive. So I didn't like the edge of someone selling drugs on the corner. I want to lock that person up. Someone's using crack, I want to lock them up. And, you know, I used to love doing jump outs and things like that. So in my career, I was put into the narcotics unit uh, early in the 90s. And we were like a jump out unit. We see people standing on the corner, see a hand-to-hand drug deal, run in, lock up the guy, sold it lock up the guy in the bot, and 
when I lock up the guy that bought dope, I'd say, hey, buddy, you need to get yourself into some drug treatment. That was the end of it. I would process them, go get yourself some drug treatment, you almost see me over the end of it. And that went on through the 90s where we're just locking up people every night. Every night I wanted to lock somebody up. I wanted the person to run. I wanted the person to resist. And I figured I'm going to run them down. I'm going to lock them up and we're going to go get the next guy. Yeah, and teach them a lot. I believed yeah. <laughs> 100% that handcuffs and incarceration was the answer to this drug. When I felt like that when I was working, the streets were safer. I felt like I'm locking people up. Everything's good. And we went through this in the 90s, and then I was put into a narcotics unit, which was like mid-level dealers and major dealers, street stuff, and I moved into a DEA task force. And the DEA gave us money because we're located in Western Maryland, which West Virginia is only a mile from us, and Pennsylvania is only a mile from us. So it gave us federal jurisdiction. It gave us the ability to work bigger cases, and we could do wiretaps, and we could have money from buy bust, and we could... We had the strong arm of the federal government. We could take people and indict them on a federal level and give them mandatory minimums. If you remember, this is during the Clinton years, and Clinton is really the one that he's really the one that did all this stuff, mandatory minimums and very tough and, on crime. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So when you think about really it was the Clinton administration that really did the mandatory minimums and get tough on crime and lock up everybody and incarcerate the drug addicts. So and at that time, I believed that we were doing God's work, man. I felt like I was making a difference. I lived for my job. I mean, even when I went to work and I was in those neighborhoods where the open air drug markets were, I was in, in those neighborhoods playing basketball. I knew everybody. I knew everybody that was using them, everybody that was selling. They all knew me. And I felt like we were really making a difference. And as time went on, I'd be like, hey, man, get yourself into some treatment. Yeah. You know, you keep doing the same thing time and time again. You got to get out of this. Be advising people, go get treatment, lock them up, move on to the next one. And parents were coming to me all the time, but their kid, you know, maybe I'd arrested their kid. Parents were coming to me all the time. Hey, my kid's messed up, man. Can you talk to him? Because I was doing a lot of public speaking then on behalf of the police. Where I was going to different schools and stuff trying to, because yeah. during that time, we still had a big school resource officer program. It wasn't called school resource, called DARE then. Yeah. You know, yeah. DARE officers, and they would bring in narcotics officers like myself to speak to schools and thinking that we were doing everything. We we're throwing everything against the wall. Let's see what works. You just pump that narrative of drugs are bad, don't do them. And, right. You know, you know, the old throw an egg in the skillet, this is your brain on drugs. Yeah. And it just went on. And the jails were getting full, the courts were sick of seeing us. But the courts had no choice in it, really, because there was all these mandatory minimums and three-strike laws and all that shit in place. I'm thinking, man, what? who are we helping here? I mean, I'm locking somebody up for having a peanut size of crack, and the guy's getting 10 years in jail. He doesn't even have a chance to turn his life around. He's, no. You know. And then when he goes to jail, he's not getting any drug treatment. No. So even though he is not around drugs and alcohol, he comes out in six, seven years, he's still hooked. Mm-hmm. My son was born in 92. My daughter, Brooke, was born in 1995. And as Brooke started to get older, she's in 2005, she's 10 years old. 2010, she's 15 years old. That's when I started to see a change in her. I started to see her become oppositional and defiant. We were exceptionally close. Brooke and I were exceptionally close. I coached her in her sports and 
soccer and basketball. And I mean, she wasn't no, she wasn't going to be a professional player, a major college player, but she loved playing. She was very good for our area. But you know, you put her in a big ball. I mean, she wasn't. I'm not stupid. She wasn't me a ham or anybody. You, you uh, see her being involved in school activities and stuff. So that's absolutely. She's out keeping her at. <laughs> Things are going good. I had high hopes for. Her. I felt like she was going to conquer the world. She's very outgoing, very engaging. She was loud, obnoxious, just like her father. Yeah, she liked telling jokes. Somebody'd fall down, she'd want to laugh at him and sit and help him up, and we're gonna laugh at him first. Yeah. But then in like 2010, 2011, she's 15, 16. I started to find cigarettes. Most families don't care, you know. Cigarettes ain't a big deal, right? Yeah, they're just smoking cigarettes. But to me, I just felt like that was troubling. And then there was marijuana. A lot of people think marijuana is a big deal. Then I find vodka. A lot of people don't think vodka is a big deal. And what I know now, Justin, is vodka is not a big deal. Marijuana is not a big deal. Cigarettes aren't a big deal. There's somebody who's 35 years old. Somebody who's 15 years old, it's a big deal. Yes, it is. If you're 35 and you're out having sex with multiple people when one night, I don't care. If you're 15, don't you got problems. If you're smoking pot at 35, I, you know, you're not going to die, not for marijuana. But if you're 15 smoking marijuana, it's leading to worse things in your life. Yeah. And people would always say, oh, marijuana is a gateway drug. And I'm like, so is tobacco and alcohol. Yeah, <laughs> I'm like, absolutely. I'm like, so is absolutely. <laughs> yes. I'm not saying that it's a, listen, at 35, it's not a gateway drug, but at 15, alcohol, marijuana, cigarettes all that shit is at that age your brain is still developing and we're trying to build a foundation for a successful life that's all those types of behaviors none of those behaviors are problems if you're 35 but at 15 those problems are damaging your foundation for productive life sex breaking the law being oppositional defiant marijuana alcohol all that stuff is damaging your foundation for a successful life. At 15 is when we need to start really having structure and discipline in your life so you can be focused on going into the military, or going to a trade store, going to college, or just finding a job. But we need to have structure and discipline in your life at that point in order for you to move on for a successful life. So did you think that this was just a regular teenage defiance, or did yes. you... At that point, I just think, you know, I mean, she's, it's just the new generation. That's what they do when they're opposition. Fine. But none, nonetheless, I'm a drug cop at the time. So my daughter and I, we fought like hell. Yeah. Because I. You're not accepting this. No. It's not going to go on in my house. My house, my rules. And as we went through, she's in and out of different types of counseling, mental health counseling, and nothing seemed to work. You know, it just wasn't working. The opposition on defiance was growing. And when she was finished with high school, I couldn't wait. I mean, I told my wife, I said, we're going to tell her to get out of the house. And when she leaves this house, she's going to know that it's a lot harder to make it out on your own than what she realizes. She's going to know that she needs that structure. She needs that discipline. And she's going to come running right back to me. Yeah. So... I tell her, hey, you want to go by your rules? You want to stay out half the night? Leave. 
you go get your own place. Well, that's what she did. Yeah. So she went and moved in with some shit bags, as I call them. <laughs> They're never good, are they? <laughs> you know, what I know now is, I mean, it wasn't everybody else. It was Brooke. You know, it's not everybody else. You can blame your kids are hanging out with the wrong people. Your kids are the wrong people. You know, it's hard to say that as a parent. It's not everybody else's fault. It's your kid's fault. They might you know, be the ringleader. It's not out drinking because his buddies drink. Yeah. Your husband's out drinking because that's what he wants to do. And then when she was out for like three months, she come back. She called me. She said she wanted to meet me. And she wanted to meet me. And I'm still Archie Bunker at this point in my life. I'm like, what do you mean you want to meet me? You didn't want me before. What do you want me for now? You know, I need to talk to you, Dad. I got a problem. I need to talk to you. So I went and met her. Thinking she was going to tell me. I really believed her. She was going to tell me she was pregnant. Yeah. She told me, she said, Dad. She started crying. She said, I'm really sorry. I said, what are you sorry for? She says, I'm hooked on Percocets. She says, I'm taking Percocets every morning. She says, and it's controlling my life. She says, that's all I think about. As soon as I get to Percocet, all I think about is how I'm going to get the one the next day. And she says, I'm, I'm doing anything I can to get these Percocets. And she says, you can make this go away, Dad. Can, can, you, can you fix it? And I'll tell you how, how, how naive I was, Justin. I believed I can fix it. I believe that. You're the dad. You're, you're... I'm a drug cop, man. I can fix this. I said, let's get you in some drug treatment. And I thought, man, we're going to do a full court press. You know, I'm not taking this shit lightly. I'm going to get her into a drug treatment program. I knew everybody in the drug treatment program. I knew everybody. I knew all the counselors. I'm calling them up and they're like, well, it's all up to your insurance company what they're going to pay for. You're not going to be able to check her into a drug treatment program. Not that easy. Not that easy. Has she lost a job yet? Oh, no. Has she been arrested? No. Has she overdosed? Uh, not that I know of. Yeah, she's not that bad of a drug addict. So we're going to put her in counseling. She can come to counseling every night through the week. We'll talk to her about it. It'll be group counseling. So let's start taking her to our health department where they're having the counseling and everybody there. I mean, I know everybody there because I arrested all of them. They're all on this drug counseling. You know, so, How did you feel when you walked in? <laughs> well, I mean, it was I'm like, we got my daughter here. And I mean, yeah, it was just, it was, honestly, I felt like it was going to work. I felt like it would work. If you stay with the program, it's going to work. Yeah. But Brooke's in about three weeks, and she comes to me and says, well, I don't need counseling. She said, I got it. I got it figured out now. I'm off of it. Mm. Now, I've been a cop for 20 years, 25 years at this point, and I'm thinking, no way. No way. You don't quit counseling. You don't quit your drug treatment program. But, again, we're fighting like hell because I'm like, you do not quit. She quit it. Within three months, she comes back, and now she's looking unkept. 
her hair's not combed and she's a beautiful, beautiful girl. Just, I mean, she is everything to me. You know, I mean, you understand now, I mean, she, she means everything in the world to me. I would give my life for her to get straight. I said, Brooke, it doesn't look like everything is going good, man. I said, what's happening? And she says, I'm shooting heroin. I said, what, what do you mean you're shooting heroin? She says, I couldn't afford the Percocets anymore. She says, they're too hard to get. And she says, heroin's a lot cheaper. And in order to keep from getting sick, I'm shooting heroin, I'm shooting every morning. I mean, I felt like, I felt like my world was coming to an end, man. I felt like my heart had just been cut out. It's the worst feeling I have ever had in my life when she told me she was hooked on heroin. Heroin has that stigma attached to it. And I mean, you can yeah, pop I, a pill, you can drink some vodka, you can do that, but sticking a needle in your arm is... It was, I mean, I was devastated. And I said, look, I'm going to get you in that inpatient program. I don't give a fuck. If I got to pay for it, if insurance pays for it, I don't care. We're going to a drug treatment. So we started trying to do that. And that was very challenging getting into a program. Even when they, you know, we want to say this is a life and death situation. I mean, drug use is killing 100,000 Americans a day, but we still don't see it as a major emergency. There is no such thing as walk-in on-demand drug treatment. No. Call up the treatment center and they tell you, oh, yeah, we got a bed space. Well, first, let us check your insurance. We'll call you back. You, know, you check your insurance and, hey, we got bed space for you next week. Yeah. Yeah, what do you do that week? So I'm a cop. I'm a drug cop, man. I feel like I've been, I put my whole life on the line for over 25 years, believing that this drug war we was fighting was worth it. And you're telling the people you're arresting, Go get drug treatment, not even yeah. realizing they probably can't even get in. Didn't get... even think about it. Yeah. And now I got a week until I get my daughter in drug treatment. She's getting sick yeah. because she doesn't have any drugs in her. She needs it, man. She's getting the withdrawing off of this shit is the worst thing I've ever seen in my life, man. I mean, she is shaking with chills. She's paranoid. She's vomiting, diarrhea, everything at the same time. And I'm like, Jesus Christ, please help us. I mean, I'm praying. Can we please get some help? So I'm thinking in my heart, I need to go out on the street and buy some heroin. I need to do something to keep her from getting sick until I get her to drug treatment. But I couldn't do that. I mean, I couldn't wrap my hands around that. I couldn't go get heroin. But I know where you're coming from. You're you're trying to help your daughter. You, you, I want to save her life. Yeah. I want to keep her from getting sick. So she, I mean, I'm thinking, watching this withdrawal, I thought she was dying. Yeah. And I'm calling my kid, you know, you know, everybody's telling me, listen, she will not die from withdrawing. She will not die from withdrawing off of this stuff, which you won't. I know that now, but at the time watching it, I thought it was. Brooke snuck out in the middle of the night before we get her into drug treatment. I catch her on the lawn. I'm like, you're not going nowhere. And I mean, she's 
at this point, Brooke is begging me to shoot her, begging me to put her out of her misery because she can't go on like this. She's got to have this dope, man. She is. Dad, I'm sorry, man, but just shoot me because I can't stop. So I let her leave. A detective came and knocked on the door, and I said, is it Renee? And he just gave me that solemn look. It was the worst day ever. The Proof Podcast is back with a new case and a new season. 23 years ago, 18-year-old Renee Ramos went missing. Her body was later found in an empty Home Depot building on the edge of town. I don't think that they arrested the right people. It's about time somebody's trying to do something. She had a black eye about two weeks before she was murdered. They are involved. They definitely had her body and her backpack. You know people are going to judge you, right? Of course. They're judging me now. They've been judging me damn near my whole life. You can listen now to season two of Proof, wherever you get your podcasts. And follow along with us as we reinvestigate the murder at the warehouse. I have to ask, did you kill Renee? Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Hoping she comes back to go to treatment. Because our bed space was, you got to be there between certain time, hours and time. And if you're not there, you're off the list. Today's episode is brought to you by HelloFresh. You can make mealtime easy and delicious with recipes made with fresh, wholesome ingredients delivered directly to your door. No lines, no hassle, just great tasting meals that you can whip up and enjoy in the comfort of your own home. With the cost of groceries going up and up, now is the perfect time to get started with HelloFresh. HelloFresh is cheaper than going grocery shopping, and it's 25% less than takeout. HelloFresh has 40 weekly recipes to choose from for all meal occasions, lifestyles, and preferences. Take your pick from meals like soy glazed salmon with rice or mushroom and chive risotto. This week, I had sweet kale salad with curry cauliflower rice. It was super amazing. Next week, I'm looking forward to the cherry and Ma's grilled cheese with pickled shallot. Go to HelloFresh.com slash Peripheral60 and use code Peripheral60 for 60% off plus free shipping. That's HelloFresh.com slash Peripheral, P-E-R-I-P-H-E-R-A-L, 60, and use the code Peripheral60. HelloFresh. America's number one meal kit. Yeah. Well, Brooke eventually came back and I give her the drug treatment. She's there two or three days and she leaves. And the facility doesn't call me and tell me. One of my friends calls me and tells me, hey, your daughter's back out on the street. I'm like, yeah, she's in drug treatment. And he's like, no, buddy, she's down here knocking on windows of cars trying to get money. And I'm like, what the? Come on, man. So I'm calling the drug treatment place. I'm like, is my daughter still in there? And they're like, well, because of HIPAA, sir, we can't discuss that with you. I'm like, when you wanted the check, when you wanted the check, you could talk to me. I was a total asshole with the people. I'm like, you got to be kidding me, man. So 
you're getting a shock of the system. Oh my God, you're getting a shock. I'm getting a wake up call like I couldn't believe. And eventually I catch up with her and she comes back home. I'm begging to please me and just do the right thing. And I get her into another facility. Well, actually, we had to wait 30 days to get her in the facility because your insurance check out facility couldn't check into one for 30 more days. So think about that, Justin. You have a heart attack and go to the hospital and you leave the hospital, but something happens, you still have another blockage. Sorry, you got to wait 30 more days to get that one treated. I know. That's... We don't treat this like a disease. We say we treat it like a disease. That's bullshit. We don't treat this like a disease. All treatment centers, not all, all treatment centers for people that don't have money, they're in seedy sections of town. They're overcrowded. They're on bunk beds. Who's 50 years old goes into the hospital with a heart attack and sleep on the top bunk, right? They're in rundown shopping centers. Who are you going for diabetes? You check into a freaking shopping center that's in a poor section of town. With No, you go to a hospital. But we don't do that. Their heart's in the right place, but what good is it really doing? Exactly. So we go through this time and time again. I mean, I'm in and out of this inpatient stuff and treatment centers probably five, six, seven, eight times. And nothing seems to be working. Long term, nothing's working. And eventually she's back on heroin, she's back on the streets, Baltimore City. She's prostituting. She's stealing. She's getting money any way she can to support her drug habit. It's cutting my heart out. It is a father's worst nightmare. Because she doesn't want to be out there. I don't want her out there. I can't help her. She's truly the only one that can help herself. Very hard for me to get my hands around. Still hard for me to grasp that. I want to help her. man. I still want to help her. She's no longer with us. I still want to. I was behind getting her incarcerated, getting her arrested, getting her incarcerated. She had needles in her possession, so they incarcerated her for four months from there. Today, we issue needles, right? Yeah. But at the time, yeah, we could get her incarcerated. For, so she went to jail for four months. So she's going to go through withdrawal. She's hopefully going to be clean for four months. She's going to withdraw into jail. It's going to be the most miserable thing she ever used to. She goes through that withdrawal is normally about you know five to ten days. Yeah. So when she's finished with that, I start talking to her. And things are coming together. Things are looking good. I mean, I'm talking to her and she's joking and she's laughing, and we're having, you know, she's got her goals back. She wants to go to college. She's thinking, man, if we get my old Brooke back thing, this was a good move. Yeah. And things are going okay. And she says when she gets out of jail, she wants to have a treatment center. She wants to have a place where girls can go and recover off of drugs. Okay. You can run it. And she don't want a treatment center like the treatment center she's been to. She wants to have a nice one. She wants the house to be the most beautiful thing in the world. An environment makes a difference. <laughs> yes, absolutely it does. Absolutely. And um I tell people all the time, you can learn to read anywhere. But it's a lot nicer if you're at Duke University learning to read, you know? 
Yeah. We're a beautiful campus. It's not overcrowded, low teacher to student ratio, you know, all that stuff. Helps. So I'm telling her, I said, listen, you want to have a treatment. You want to do this. When you get out of jail, you stay clean for one year. And you take some classes in drugs and alcohol and you take some classes out to be a counselor and maybe some business classes on everyone because it's going to be a business. You got to learn how to do this. Yeah. She said, okay, I'll do it. I'll do it. I'm ready. I said, but you know what you got to do? You got to pray to God. You got to pray to God that this is what you want. You want to have this treatment center. I said, I'm going to tell you something. So my mother always told me that if you pray for something and if God wants it to be, it'll happen. It's going to be on God's time, but it'll happen. You got to pray for it. And when you say amen, that's when you got to do the work because the work's ultimately up to you. She said, okay. Well, she calls me at night. She said, I prayed. So I prayed. And that's what I want. I said, okay. She gets out of jail at the end of March 2015. And she's 19 years old. And the judge says, you need to get a job. You need to continue with your drug and alcohol treatment. You need to keep the peace and be a good behavior. General probation. Justin, even today, who's going to hire a 19-year-old girl that gets out of jail, that's got needles on the record, and she's been out a week, been out a day? I mean, uh, Justin, are you going to hire something like that? Knowing no, that I know. Yeah, you're I mean, going to have to answer the question. <laughs> yeah. You're not going to. Yeah. I mean, they got nothing positive on a resume at all. Yeah. They've been out of jail a week. And she's a lady. So retail stores aren't going to hire because they don't want her around money. Fast food places aren't going to hire. They don't want her around money. They don't want another drug addict. They're not going to take the chance. Very difficult for a girl to find sobriety. Very difficult for a lady that is in an active addiction to find a job, find somebody that's going to take a chance on her. Can't have her cleaning houses. Can't put her in people's houses. She's only been out of jail for a week. She'll you want your house, clean yeah. your house? Still so, everything, yeah. Whereas if a man was trying to recover, we can put him on a blacktop crew, put him on a construction. He can pour concrete. He can put a roof on. He can build a house. There's a million jobs we can put a man into. Yeah. She was getting more and more frustrated when she got out. She was starting to see her dream is not going to be as easy to obtain as she thought. Yeah. So... April 2015, I come home from work. I pulled my crew. I'm in uniform patrol at this time. I pulled my cruiser in and block her car in because I don't want her leaving in the middle of the night. Kiss her goodnight, tell her I love her, and everything was good. Wake up the next morning and I see tire marks through the yard where she get up in the middle of the night and she drove the car out through the yard and left. What had happened was she left and went back to her so-called friends and she relapsed and she shot up with heroin and that didn't get her, that didn't kill her. She had an overdose. She started overdose and they got scared. So they started walking around the block and giving her different things and putting her in the shower and thinking all this stuff. And eventually she starts to become coherent again. And they explained to her, you can't use the same amount of heroin you used to use. Because you've been sober for the four months you've been in jail. You've been sober. 
So you got to use a lesser amount. You have no tolerance. Yeah. Yeah. So these shit bags decided to mix up a lesser amount. I would shoot up again. And they knew I was a police. Because I had confrontations with all of them in the past. They knew that if anything happened to my daughter, they knew that I was going to be coming for them. So they're scared. So they threw my daughter out of the house like five o'clock in the morning. Brooke leaves that house driving in. She's overdosing at the time. She calls one of her sponsors from the program. And her sponsor said, you know, you need to call your dad. And that's when Brooke said, I, I, I can't call my dad anymore. My dad has stood by me. He's helped me get into treatment so many times. He's driven me to treatment. He really believes I was going to make it this time. And I keep disappointing him and embarrassing him. I just can't call my dad again. She drove to a church where she played basketball as a kid. And she uh, crawled in the back seat of her car. And she died right there from a heroin overdose. Good friend of mine at the police department called me and said he needed to meet me. When he met me, he did the death notification. And uh, my wife and I, we went to the church. The deputy police officer took us to the scene. and We identified Brooke, who was dead in the back seat of her car. And we left there mad as hell. Mad at everybody. And um, her obituary said she died from a heroin overdose. She died from a drug addiction. I didn't put in there that she liked puppies and yeah. please donate to the Humane Society. I didn't put in there that she was a gifted athlete or, you know, a great student. The fact of the matter is somebody's involved in, in active addiction. They're oppositional, they're defiant, they're very difficult to be around. They lie, cheat, and steal to support their habit. That's the facts. Yeah. Everybody in active addiction does the same thing. So then that week, at the end of the week, we had a funeral. And Justin, at this funeral, I didn't know what I was going to see at the funeral. I didn't know who was coming and who wasn't. And we just had hundreds of people coming to this funeral that I did not know. We had people. We had a lot of families show up. Had a lot of police officers show up that I worked with through the years. But then I started seeing all these people that I had arrested throughout my career for drugs. Because I can honestly tell you, I never... I never got charged with excessive 
force or anything like that. I treated people right when I arrested them. I tried to treat them like a gentleman. You know, it was just a game to me. You know, I arrested you. you know, I got you. I got you. And all these people I arrested come in and said, man, so sorry for your loss. And then I had all kinds of people come in that Brooke was in jail with. So, yeah, we're sorry. Brooke spoke highly of you, but we're sorry. Then I had people come in from the rooms, the rooms being AA or NA, wherever Brooke was going to meetings. And then we had a bunch of people from active addiction come to the funeral that heard about her death, that read it in the paper or whatever. Coming through the line and greet us. And I'm still a little bit, I got a little bit edge still. I'm like, I don't really talk to people about addiction. You're angry. You're upset. You're yes. every, all these emotions. going. Every, on. every emotion. But as it goes on, I'm thinking these people coming through here, that's Brooke coming through this line. They do not need to be arrested. They do not need to be incarcerated. They're not criminals. God damn, man, they're sick people. All they need is some help here. They just need help again. They need some treatment. You know, I'm thinking to myself, if Brooke was here with me, who would she want to embrace and talk? She wouldn't want to talk to the cops. No. She'd like cops. You know? She'd want to help these people out that are sick. The ones that needed it the most. Yeah. And uh, so after she passed, I'm still on the job and I got people stopping me at work that are in active addiction saying, waving down my cruiser. Sir, we're sorry for your loss. Can you help us get clean? Can you help us find treatment? And I'm like, no, I don't know anything about this. I can't, you just get to find it. You're like, I couldn't even get my own daughter clean. How can I help? Right. And it just keeps happening. I got parents calling me every morning, every afternoon, every night. I got people showing up at my house. I got people coming to my house in active addiction. I had a girl one time just lay needles on the hood of my car. Before I'd lock people up, if I found a needle or stem or find anything you're under arrest yeah and i got people laying needles on the hood of my car saying you know brooke told us you could fix us brooke told us you could make this go away So eventually, Justin, my wife, who's one of the most beautiful Christian people that I've ever met in my life, my wife says, God is trying to answer Brooke's prayer. He wants this house that Brooke prayed for. 
And at the time, Justin, I really don't even want to hear that because I really don't want to talk to God or believe in God. I'm not too, if there is a God, I, I really don't think that I want to meet him. The one thing from you. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, what the hell? But as time goes by and people keep coming to me, and I mean, so many parents are calling me, and I'm, I'm answering every call. Every email, every call, everybody that would listen to my story, I would go speak to them. I don't care if they're in active addiction. I'll go talk to their kid. I'll talk to the parents. I'll do everything I can. If I can do anything, it's my way of mourning. If I can do anything to save anybody, to help anybody's family not go through what we went through, I'm going to do it. So we started going out and speaking out. That we're gonna we're gonna try to buy a house and we're gonna make it a house for girls to recover in. Girls that want to do the right thing. And I'm thinking I'm gonna buy a row house in the city. It's gonna be two bedrooms. We're gonna put a couple ladies in the house and tell them to recover. Because I don't have any money. I done spend everything trying to get her straight. I, I got nothing. You know, and I'm telling my friends at the police department, they think I done lost my mind. Like, are you nuts? I'm going to do this, man. My friends are like, it's not going to work. Nobody's going to give you money. You're trying to help out women of color, women who are on the streets, women who have no teeth, women who are prostituting or stealing, women who are homeless, women who are... Who in the hell is going to give you money to help out that population? I said, I don't know. We'll see. So I go and started speaking out, and I had a lady that come on to help me that helped form our nonprofit. Then I started raising money, and we had a steak feed. Well, the first fundraiser we had was we were having a steak feed. Selling tickets for like $30 a ticket. Yeah. I call a local butcher friend of mine. I'm like, listen, man. Can you give me 100 steaks or 200 steaks? I said, I'll pay for them, but I can't pay until after the event because I ain't getting money. And I'm going around to different municipalities trying to find somebody who will let me use their pavilion for free. Because you know? I ain't got $200 to give somebody a pavilion. Donate to the cause. <laughs> yeah, you know, just hell yeah. So we start selling tickets. I'm going to tell my buddies, I'm at a local bar. With all my buddies, I'm like, look, man, everybody take 20 tickets and sell them for me. And about three days before the state feed, people were calling me saying, man, we need more tickets. Everybody's buying these tickets. So we started selling the tickets. And I called the butcher. I said, man, I need 400 steaks. Then I called him and said, we need 600 steaks. You're cleaning them out. Uh, <laughs> And we show up at this place, this pavilion, it's way out in the middle of nowhere. And we get there and I see all these cars. And I see this satellite truck from the TV station. And the park that we're at is beside a little league field. And I'm thinking to myself, this little league must have a good team, man. They got a satellite truck here and everything. <laughs> it's not setting in yet, is it? I'm thinking, where are all these people from? And the guy from the TV station comes up to me and says, 
Hey, do you know, uh, do you know where we can find Kevin Simmers? That's it. Well, yeah, that's me. He's wearing an interview. I'm like, about, about what? They said, well, we want to hear what you're doing here. And I knew nothing about fundraising, nothing about raising money. I don't know nothing about no. I know I know how to lock people up. That's all I know. And I said, well, yeah. We had this steak feed, Justin. It had steaks and baked potatoes and baked beans. I had no silverware. I had nothing to do. I didn't have anything. I forgot. I forgot all about it. <laughs> Everyone's getting their plate. Like, what are we eating with? I'm like, use your fingers. <laughs> We're out to a little dollar store and just grab everything, every piece of plastic where they got by. <laughs> People trying to cut steak with plastic. <laughs> I mean, it's just crazy, man. I didn't know. That. Yeah, it's, it was a, it was probably the worst organized fundraiser ever. And a guy interviews me. Everyone is coming up and talking to me, and they're all sharing stories. They're all saying, "Hey, you know, I got a niece messed up." or my daughter's messed up, or my sister's messed up, or everybody knows somebody who is messed up. Everybody. I'm like, Jesus, are you kidding me? And we're not even a nonprofit at this point. We're just a couple of grieving parents. It's like, hey, we're going to try to do something. <laughs> and they're sticking money in my pocket, you know, and I'm not even paying attention. And my wife and I get home that night, and I start emptying my pockets. Justin, I got over $10,000. Jesus. <laughs> wow. People just kept sticking hundreds in my pocket. I'm counting this money. I'm like, I remember looking at my wife saying, it's too late to change our mind. Yeah. At this point, we're going to go through this thing. And we started to tell our story. And one thing happened after another. And really, this is where, Justin, this is where I really started to, this is where I really started to believe that, you know, there is a God. This is where I really believe that there was a change because I felt like, you know, the things that are happening, I mean, $10,000, that doesn't happen. That's sort of thing, man. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of good things happening. Then I had a gentleman come forward who, who was willing to donate the ground to me to build a house on. It was outside the city. He said, you can build whatever kind of house you want and do anything and and then we do a sign unveiling. And when we do the sign unveiling, you know, I have a little bit of money, but not very much. It's a sign unveiling for where we're going to put this house. And I remember going to a farmer friend of mine. And I'm like, listen, when we start this sign unveiling, because my contractor told me, he says, you'll have people really start to donate money if they can see work taking place. When they see bricks and mortar, man, they'll start giving. I'm like, all right. So I go to this farmer friend of mine. He's got this big skid loader. I said, listen, when I get up there and start to speak to Santa, because we had a couple hundred people show up. We did a big press release and advertised, hey, come out to see where Brooks' house is going to be built. And I tell this guy, I said, hey, fire up that skid loader, man, and start pushing trees over. <laughs> I said, act like we're working our ass off. Yeah. I said, get people enthusiastic about this. I said, listen, when I start speaking, I said, man, turn that throttle up where that diesel motor is so loud they can't even hear me. So we're out here and I'm speaking and he's got this kid letter pushing trees over. 
and I would show them where the house is going to be built. Turns out this guy was pushing trees over on the neighboring lot. He wasn't even on my property. But people really, I mean, people really started to buy in. And we're speaking out. And my contractor at the time was a local contractor. He was diagnosed with terminal cancer. He was going to be dead in a year. He said, this is the last thing I'm going to do. He says, never ask me how I feel. He says, but I'll be here every day for you. He was here. He was sick every day. He was here every day. I'm getting this thing built. And people started to come and donate money. And our local guy, a guy that owns Total Wine and More. You ever heard of a Total Wine and More? Yeah. The owner of the man by the name of David Trone. Mm -hmm. He lost his nephew to addiction. He shows up on the site and writes a check for $100,000. Wow. I mean, and then things just started to come together. It was just unbelievable. Every night I was moved to tears. We started to build this house and we're putting together a treatment program. And my wife and I, we're going on vacation. And every place we go, we're going to treatment centers. We're going to halfway houses. We're going to rehab centers. We want to see what works, what's the best things. And we want to bring that back to here. Because I don't know anything. But I know everything I went to sucked. So I want to do something different. I want something that's going to give a lady a chance at recovery. You know what doesn't work. <laughs> I know what doesn't work. And I want people to be treated with dignity and respect. I want it to be treated like a disease. And I want them to be able to get a job when they leave here. And if they can't get a job, I want to give them a job. And we started to do this thing. And it started to come together. And then NPR, NPR, Justin, other than your podcast, NPR is the greatest thing in journalism. <laughs> your podcast. <All> right. <laughs> but NPR is just absolutely unbelievable. When they did this story, that's when the thing really went global. It went world. We started getting donations from around the world. And things just started going crazy. And we didn't get, I mean, we didn't get rich, but we got enough money to pay for, it was $2 million to build. We got enough money to build everything and to get it all set up to where we could open debt free. And every night I'd go home, I'd cry, say, man, we're nothing but a bunch of frauds. We don't have enough money to finish this. A detective came and knocked on the door and I said, is it Renee? And he just gave me that solemn look. It was the worst day ever. The Proof Podcast is back with a new case and a new season. 23 years ago, 18-year-old Renee Ramos went missing. Her body was later found in an empty Home Depot building on the edge of town. I don't think that they arrested the right people. It's about time somebody's trying to do something. She had a black eye about two weeks before she was murdered. They are involved. They definitely had her body and her backpack. You know people are going to judge you, right? Of course. They're judging me now. They've been judging me damn near my whole life. You can listen now to Season 2 of Proof wherever you get your podcasts. And follow along with us as we reinvestigate the murder at the warehouse. I have to ask, did you kill Renee? American Criminal is a new true crime podcast from the studio behind American Scandal and American History Tellers. Every week, you'll fall deeper into the riveting stories of the country's most clever, craven, and cruel criminals. Fraud, theft, murder, and worse. 
Whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the whole story until now. The debut season tackles one of the most sensational cases of the 20th century, the Menendez murders. In 1989, young Lyle and Eric Menendez brutally shot their own parents. Prosecutors and the press said it was a multi-million dollar inheritance that led two greedy rich kids to murder. But the picture-perfect facade this Hollywood family built hid troubling abuse. Could these teenagers have been driven to kill? Or was it even in self-defense? Listen now. Go to AmericanCriminal.com or search for and follow American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. And I don't know what we're doing. I don't know. This thing is not. I don't know anything about women. I don't know anything about rehab. This thing ain't going to work. We're going to be the biggest joke going. That's called the imposter syndrome. You think you're not worthy. You think you're a fraud. You think you can't do what people are looking for you to do. And if you were a fraud, you wouldn't be questioning yourself. <laughs> so, I mean, I'm, I don't think we can do this. I'm not a professional counselor. I'm not anything in behavioral health. And in the meantime, we got everybody. We got the governor of Maryland showing up here, wanting to tour the property. And we got people showing up. It's just unbelievable. I mean, it's the amount. Of, and then and NPR did. Then Fox. I was on Martha McCallum with Fox News. And then uh, ABC did a story on it. And then, and then BBC out of London wanted to do it. It was just the Atlantic Monthly then did an article. It was just one thing after another. I'm like, my God, these people, you know. And I got to put together, hey, positive. I know I can do this. And when I'm leaving, I'm puking. I'm like, man, this thing ain't going to work. How are we going to sustain revenue? How are we going to be able to make this thing work? You know, my wife's telling me every night, God didn't bring us this far to fail. My <laughs> wife's telling me every night, I'm praying for it. And I'm like, I don't want to hear that. She's like, I'm telling you, man, it doesn't matter if you believe or not. God uses non-believers like he uses believers. This thing is going to work. But my wife's telling me, listen, I don't want to hear none of it. I'm like, you know, we got a $100,000 bill due. This thing is in the tank. And eventually we wake up one morning and things built. And we're going to have a, I remember my contractor, I said, we're going to have a ribbon cutting ceremony. Hey, I need you there because you mean a lot to me. You, you put this thing together. And he tells me, he says, I got an appointment in May. Yeah, I can't make May. He says, we're going to do it in February. But everyone told me not to do the ribbon cutting in February because it's too cold. You know, you're going to have a thousand people here. So we back it up. We have it in February. In February in 2019 is when we do our ribbon cutting. It was 70 degrees out that day. And we do the Saturday building. The reason my contractor wouldn't have it in February instead of May, he knew he was dying. He died two months later. And we started getting women in here and I, sometimes I think we still don't know what the hell we're doing here, Justin. We still, because people are calling me all around the world. Hey, how can we build a Brooks house? How'd you do this? I don't know, man. I don't know how we built this. I don't know how we put this together. I don't know why we're so successful. I don't know. Other than tell you, Justin, listen, listen, I don't know if you were a believer. I'm telling you, you come to this property. You're going to feel a working Jesus Christ on this property. God's got his hand on us. And and listen, I'm not a great guy. He should probably have his hand on a lot of other people. There's a lot better people out here than me. 
but he's got his hand on the man and he's taking care of this because I truly don't know what I'm doing here. And I don't know how we put this together and how it works every day, but it is working. And what we've done here, our girls stay here for six months to find sobriety. We give them mental health training and we opened a chocolate and coffee shop called Brooks House Chocolate. Get on that and look at it. Yeah. If you need chocolate. Our girls work there making chocolate. They work there serving coffee. It's staffed 100% by girls in recovery. Girls who are homeless are now running my coffee shop. They're now handling the money. They handle the marketing. They handle everything. But then we built a thrift store. We have a thrift store now. The thrift store is like a mini, miniature Walmart. Mm-hmm. We got people coming in there all hours of the day, buying everything we get. Everything is donated, and it's all stamped by Girls in Recovery. We do pickups and deliveries. We have six or eight vehicles here on the property. The vehicles are all Brooks House vehicles. I have girls showing up here. They were homeless on the street, and everybody's telling me, don't trust them. They'll lie, cheat, and steal. My cop friends are like, you're nuts. I give them the keys to the car, and they go out and do deliveries, and they bring the cash back. Yeah. I'm telling you, I got the best work. I got a better workforce here than Google has. And every one of my girls are here. They got, every one of them has gauges and tattoos and piercings, and they all got criminal records, and they've lived on the streets and homeless, and they've been drug addicts. And it's the most beautiful people I've ever been around in my life. I trust these girls more than I trusted the boys in blue back on the police force. These people here got my back. These people work their ass off. If they're given a purpose and given a chance, they will knock it out of the park. And that's what's happening here at Brooks House. We're located in Western Maryland. We're located in Hagerstown, Maryland. Justin, I beg you to please come out. You can do a podcast live from right here at Brooks House. You can talk to my ladies here. It's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. And for a guy that says he doesn't know what he's doing, you've done a lot. It's like I told you when we started, there's so many people in this that will speak out and cheerleaders, but you got to do something. So what I tell people is, you know, with different municipalities and cities around the country, what do we do? Quit speaking out about it and do something. Do something. I don't care what you do. Do something. Something will work. Just keep trying until it works. But we've been blessed here. We're very thankful. It wouldn't be possible without the support of people around, really around the world. It wouldn't be possible without the community support. Our girls, when they show up here, I tell them all, I don't care where you've been. I don't care what you've done. I care what you're doing now and where you're going. And I trust you 100%. Until you shatter that trust, I have no reason not to trust you. I have ladies that come in here, Justin. I give them the keys of the truck. And I say, I need you to take this envelope to the bank. we got some money here. I've had him break down in my office and start crying saying, are you sure you want to do that? Nobody trusts me. And I said, look, I understand. I understand why they don't trust you. I understand why you feel the way you do. But I trust you right now. I want to give you a chance to do the right thing. These ladies will not steal from me. They will not break that trust. They've been given an opportunity. These ladies are going to fight their ass off to do the right thing. And that's how Brooks House is different than every other program in the country. You weren't with them the last 10 years like their family was. You were getting a clean slate to them. Yes. We're starting right now. And the other thing is, Justin, that helped get the community behind. We're very transparent about this. 
Yeah. You got somebody in your family struggling. You think there's no hope? There's no chance of recovery. Come to our coffee shop and see our girls, stalk our girls, hear their story. Yeah. Come to our thrift shop. Call up and donate a couch that you no longer want. You'll see our ladies who were on the streets, who were in active addiction, are coming to your house and picking up that couch. That is a chance at recovery. That is hope. That is promise. You got a chance as long as your child, as long as your loved one is breathing. There is a chance. As long, do not give up. As long as they are breathing, there's a chance that they will recover. I've been to a few meetings and stuff, and it's one thing for someone to stand up in a meeting and say they've been clean and sober for five months, but it's another thing to see somebody working and being successful. Yes. And what we need, we don't need incarceration. You know, we want to go out and lock up a drug. I mean, listen, 25 years on the police force, I didn't do shit. We're locking people. I wasn't helping nobody. I think here's what I, when I'm appointed king, Justin, when I'm appointed <laughs> king of this very president, if you ever see me running, here's what we're going to do. We're going to still arrest people. But the day you're arrested, I'm going to say, Justin, you can go to drug treatment or you can go to jail. You can go towards a path of recovery or you can go down the criminal justice system. Which do you want? You make the choice. And some people might just say, hey, because they're not ready for recovery. They may say, well, just let me go through the criminal justice system. I'm not messing around going through recovery. Okay, it's your choice. But give somebody the opportunity for recovery. Give them an honest chance of recovery. Don't put them in some flea bag hotel with bunk beds in it and say, this is our treatment center. We got six girls to a room, you know, and and think that people are going to recover in that environment. Give them an honest chance. Give them a beautiful, why can't a drug rehab center look like Duke University? Why can't it be a campus setting? You know, when you see, and I, listen, I'm not, please don't take this the wrong way, but when you see Cancer Center Treatment of America, I want to go there. Yeah. I mean, look at that place. That's beautiful. They got fountains out front and paths and weight rooms and massages. And like, what the hell, man? If I get cancer, that's where I want to be. Why can't drug addiction be treated like that? I mean, it's it looks safe. It looks nice. It's somewhere you want to be. Whereas, again, I've been to a few places where I'm like, I don't even want to pull in that parking lot. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, the drug dealer's waiting there. Before yeah. you go into treatment, the drug dealer's waiting out front. You're like, uh, I mean, well, how, come on, how do you mean is that? Yeah. My daughter was 19 checking in these. I remember once we took her to a halfway house because they said when she completed the inpatient program, she should go to a yeah. halfway house or sober living house. We're looking for places in the Baltimore area for her to go into. I mean, these places, one of them was boarded, one section of the house was boarded up. Yeah. You know, uh, one was posted on the door from the local health department saying bed bugs were in this facility. Well, what the hell, man? I mean, who, how's that giving a girl an honest chance of recovery? Drug dealers were right across the street. And we dropped her off. I never forget, we dropped her off at one and she checked in there and she says, Dad, this is what my counselors tell me to do. And you, you know, because I'm always telling her what to do. And she says, You don't have the answer, Dad. These professionals told me I need to check in. I said, Okay. You're, you're like, uh, yeah. So I leave there. I'm crying. I'm like, man, there's no way she's going to make it there. I mean, within a week, she was relapsed and checked out. You know, so we just try, we're trying to raise the bar here, Justin. We try to think outside the box, we're trying to do different things, we're trying to give everybody a purpose, give everybody a job, give them some occupational training, job training, give mental health counseling. 
Not everybody's ready for you. Here, here's the problem. Here's the challenge we have, Justin. I like to say we're like all of our ladies consider them as Division One athletes. Mm-hmm. And other drug treatment facilities, that's Alabama and Florida State and Missouri. No, yeah. We are West Point. So no, you're a Division One athlete. You want to go to West Point where you're going to get up March every morning, you're going to be a morning child, and you got to go to class every day, and you got to do the right things. That's what you got to do here at Brooks House. At Brooks House, you're getting up every morning, you're making your bed, there's no cell phones allowed, there's no boyfriends allowed, there's no cars allowed. You're going to do the right thing here. But you're going to have success. You're setting yourself up for a lifetime of success. But it's hard for people that are in early stages of recovery to say, I want to go to West Point when they can go to Florida State and have their phone and have their boyfriend and have their car. Those things aren't needed for recovery. You need structure and discipline for recovery. you got to be doing the right things, and that's what we're doing here at Brookside. We're treating you like a lady. You know, I mean, our ladies, I don't want them cussing around me. They're going to have to wear a T-shirt. I want you treated like a lady, so you're going to have to dress like a lady and act like a lady. And you're going to be successful in the long run if you come to Brookside. I'm going to be by your side. I'm going to do everything in my power to help you. But I'm going to talk to you like I'm your dad. You know, as a dad, you don't want your daughter going out with her breast hanging out and dressed like, uh, you know, she's working the corner. You know, as a dad, you want your daughter, you want her acting like a lady. You want her treated like a lady. You don't want to be disrespecting her. And that's what I want here. I want to be disrespecting our ladies here. And you give them the purpose. And that's what they don't get in most treatment programs. They just get talk to they get a little bit of control of their life taken away and it's, Absolutely. it's it it's, turns into a vicious cycle um and so, the treatment facilities i always think that some of these treatment facilities they prefer you to relapse it means you're coming back and a billing cycle starts all over it's all about the money and that's the sad part and then you know when you talk about these crappy hotels or little strip mall places you know that's it, all the money they had but at the same time it, it almost feels like I wanted to get a grant from the government to say I'm doing something and I'm yeah. going to do the bare minimum, you know? Yeah, and I, 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 listen, I'm against, just so you know, Justin, I know people in the behavioral health field, they're going to think that I'm some kind of whack job because <laughs> I don't, I, I'm not saying I'm against it. It might be good for some people. I don't like methadone. I don't like methadone centers. I don't like needle exchange programs. I don't like programs where we're giving out needles. I don't like programs where we're giving out heroin. I don't think we should have legal shoot-up houses. I want that money. Those things may be necessary in what we're facing today. Probably that money be put into on-demand walk-in drug treatment centers. Or Justin struggling today, you walk in today, you check in today. Yeah. Let's put our money into that. That's what I feel. When I'm appointed king, that's what we're going to do, Justin. Well, something that I didn't share with you is my sister, well, she died in 2021 in April from an overdose and uh man i'm so sorry for that justin because yeah. justin let me tell you something she didn't want to be a drug addict no and it was hard because she ended up she ended up going to jail a few times and then she was on a very supervised probation for two years where she was getting drug tested every week she was monitored so for two years after she got out of jail pretty sure she was clean for two years because she had to be right and it was within two weeks of after her probation ended that she died right 
probably went back and used the same amount she used before. I think it was actually pure fentanyl at this point. I don't even think it had any heroin in it. I think she just. Yeah, I'm so sorry for your loss, Justin. And it's. What was her name? Megan Evans. Yeah. How old was she? She was 45 at the time. Yeah. Been struggling her whole life. Yeah. My brother died in 2004. Kind of same deal. And how old was he? uh, I think he was 32 at the time. Yeah. So I'm an only child now. Yeah. <laughs> my, my mother has lost two of her three children. And for so whatever, sorry for, man, I, my, my, listen, she will be in my prayers, man. I am so yeah. sorry for what she's went through. I just lucked out, I guess, with I never, I mean, I smoked and drank and all those things when I was a teen, but I just never went that extra step. I never got addicted to anything. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, well, God bless you, but I, mean, yeah. but I mean, but God bless your brother and sister. I'm very sorry for your losses. Very sorry for what your mother goes through. Yeah, that's why your story kind of struck a chord with me. And that's why I wanted to talk to you because well, you've been through something that I've been through too. You know? Yeah, absolutely. We can share the same, we can commiserate. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. But hopefully, Justin, by you spreading the word here yeah. and by me doing what I'm doing here, Hopefully, there's going to be less people who have to go through this. You know, I mean, you have a job there. You can spread the word and get the word out. Maybe more people reach out and support causes like ours or check into treatment themselves if they should need it. And you absolutely know what you're doing because I started podcasting over 10 years ago. And I would say for the first five years, I would say I didn't know what the hell I was doing, <laughs> but I've been doing it for over 10 years and it pays my bills. And I was sort of a pioneer in the industry. So, and people come to me and ask me, how do I do this? And that's what they're doing to you. They're, they're asking because they see you doing something right. You know? Well, you know, when we hire people here, if somebody comes in and tells me they got a master's degree in sociology and you know, well over skill. I don't care about your diplomas. I don't care about your degrees. I want somebody that's got their heart in this. You know, I hire well over skill. I try to hire people from our program, our own program. Yeah. But there's times where, I you know, that pool's not available because our girls are leaving here getting really good jobs and I can't pay them as good as what they're making. Yeah. You know, we put girls in there. There's a local company called Manitowoc. Grove. So when you ride down the road, you see those cranes. Mm-hmm. They're made by Manitowoc. Okay. Manitowoc and Grove is the oldest American-made crane in the country. So they hire our girls as welders, as assemblers, as painters, and it's been a great partnership. They absolutely love it. Yeah. So how, well, thank you, Justin. Yeah. How does someone find you? How does some plug your website? And if yeah, we wanted so, to, to donate, yeah. So we... <laughs> if you want to learn more about Brooks House. You can check out our Facebook page. You can search Brooks House. Or if you want to go to the website, which is brookshouse.org, that's B-R-O-O-K-E-S-H-O-U-S-E.org. And you can take a virtual tour of our facility. You can check out different videos. If you should need treatment, you can download an application on there and email that to us, and we will do our best to get you into some drug treatment. Awesome. Uh, But, yeah, by all means, check us out. If you're in Western Maryland, Hagerstown, Maryland, stop and visit us. We're very transparent about what we're doing here. Stop in our chocolate shop. You can get on that, brookshousechocolate.org. Check that out. 
stop in here and have a cup of coffee and some chocolate and you can come to our thrift store. So awesome. thank you very much. Thank you very much for bringing awareness to this. And it's very, very nice to meet you. Yeah, thank you. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.